Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of America podcast. Hope everybody has had a good week. I know that Ian and I have. Ian, what's going on, man? What's happening, David? Man, not much. It's, it's finally getting uh, getting cold and staying cold, and football is in the air, and we're in the middle of the holiday season. That is true, uh, except for where I am today. Uh, it's an anomaly. It's about 60 degrees. So <laughs> Really? It's, so. It's, it's snowing in Mississippi today. Is that right? Yeah. So, <laughs> this is a this is a topsy turvy world. This yeah, is turned into. It's kind of like <laughs> on Seinfeld when they would have the bizarro world. Everything is right. completely opposite. Um, <laughs> so it is holiday season, and uh, for that we have something special that we're going to do for the holidays because we want to help other people. Isn't that right, Ian? That is definitely right. We've set up a charity auction of sorts, haven't we? That's right. So we're going to have uh, Dave Chamberlain on in a few minutes, who uh, uh, works for a. a charity in Athens, Georgia called Nucci Space, and we're he's going to be on in just a second and explain all that to uh, to everybody. Ian and I want to do this to um, to try to raise some money, and this is a charity we both uh, think is important, and we think you will think likewise. So, Ian, why don't you uh, tell people kind of what we're going to have to auction and kind of how it's going to work? Well, it's going to be a, uh, a fantastic thing, I think. We kind of came up with it on the spot. We both kind of decided that, uh, being that it is the holiday season, we'd like to uh, give back a little bit. And then uh, for those of you who have been listening to us for for a bit, you'll remember some episodes back. Dave was a guest of ours, uh, talking about uh, you know the crows in general and having a good old chat. And that's when he introduced us to his charity. And you know I think it's a very very worthy cause. And Dave is a great guy, so we'd like to give back to him. So we've got some uh, some really great crows stuff across the board. You know we got some. Uh, you know, some stuff for different amounts, to whatever everybody's comfortable. But, you know, whatever you can do, it is for charity, and you'll get uh, some cool Crows items out of that. I have, a, uh, you know, some uh, some vinyl LPs and some, some CDs and some other things. I also have a signed 10-inch uh, Magpie Salute LP signed by all the members of the band. So that'll be in there. And, and uh, David, what is the super-duper auction item that uh, you had the foresight to suggest that I think is a great idea? All right, so we get emails all the time from you guys uh, telling us show topics and uh, saying you'd like to be guests on the podcast. And like we said, our goal is to eventually get everybody on. But that's going to take a long time uh, to do that because we've had so many people and there's you know only so many podcasts. Trust me, we'd like to do a podcast every night, but we, we just can't. So what we're going to do is we're going to throw up the opportunity to be a guest host for a week. You can uh, you can bid on that, and whoever's the highest bidder, you will get to come up with the topic, and you will be our guest that week and a, and a host, and we will uh, we'll go all out for you. You can pick whatever topic you want and want to do it. I am going to put a caveat on there though. We can't discuss Southern Harmony, Three Snakes, or Morka as as an album to go track by track on because we're we're trying to get some really really special stuff lined up for that. But anything else is fair game. You come up with the topic. Ian and I will research it uh, if we need to, and uh, you will be our guest host, and you will be just like one of us on the the podcast for that week. And good luck to the 
to those of you that bid. You know, I just remember that uh, you know it is all for charity, and that's why we're why we're doing this. And uh, you know, of course, guest host uh, also comes with you know your name will be on all our all our logos and sites and things, and you are the third member of this team for that week. So uh, hopefully, you'll you'll some of you out there think that's special and get involved with that, and can't wait to have whoever you might be. We're going to have Dave on here in a few minutes to discuss Nucci Space. And then our guest for this week is none other than Stephen Hyden, who, as you know, helped write Hard to Handle. He's also a very accomplished uh, music critic and uh, podcaster. And he uh, teased some new podcasts coming out next year with him on it. We recorded this about two weeks ago. It's probably about an hour long, if I remember correctly. And Mm -hmm. Stephen... Uh, does not hold back on his thoughts and views. Goes on a rant at one point. It was really cool to get to talk to him, and I think it, everybody's going to enjoy it, don't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like going into this one, you were you were quite quite a fan of uh, Stevens. I I I knew of him. I knew his books, uh, um, and I knew him as, as the co-author of Hard to Handle. And just you know, in talking with him, I mean, it was it was fantastic. It's one of the best times I've had doing this podcast. Uh, genuinely, he was a great guy. He's a great conversation. I, I wanted to talk to him for the rest of the night. We eventually had to cut it off. but Yeah, know. we actually wound up talking to him after we quit recording for about another hour. Uh, just, a, just a fascinating guy. I highly recommend uh, you know any of his written material, his, po- his past podcasts, anything he does in the future. Uh, he's got a great new book coming out uh, pertaining to Radiohead that he touches on a little bit, which I'm looking forward to. So in conjunction with that, for this episode, we have a copy of his uh last book which was a a critical success it's called twilight of the gods and it has a lot to deal with the the rise and subsequent uh, decline of uh classic rock and and what that means to music as a whole and it's a really interesting read so i bought one for myself and i bought one to uh, share with one of you lucky guys so when the episode comes out if you uh would be so kind as to uh write us a a nice uh review on uh, Apple Podcast and show us a screen cap of that review and we will pick one lucky winner at random to receive that book. Yeah, that's a very, very good book that got a lot of good press. So that's going to be a good, uh, nice little Christmas present for somebody. All right, everybody, yes. as promised from Nucci Space, here's Dave Chamberlain followed by the great Stephen Hyden. <laughs> All right, Dave. So you were just telling us before we started recording that you looked down at your uh, Skype app, and it's been exactly six months since you were on our podcast. So uh, you were our first ever guest, and you're our first repeat guest. So you're kind of like Joan Rivers on the Tonight Show back in like the '70s. You're you're, our, you're the guy we go to. That's a, that's an interesting reference point, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Good to be back. Uh, Congrats on all your success. Well, first of all, how are things going with you? Um, doing well, you know, just, um, gearing up for the holiday season and, uh, been kind of recapping all the great, all the concerts and stuff I've been to over the past year and, um, just, it's been a good year. As Ian and I explained earlier, um, Ian came up with the idea and we both have kind of run with it. Um, we want to raise some money for charity and Nucci space is one that I think is, uh, uh, a vitally important charity, especially to people that are music lovers. So 
I'm just going to turn it over to you for a second and explain Nucci Space and exactly what it is that you guys do. Yeah, well, I'm happy to do so. Um, Nucci Space is a nonprofit musicians resource center in Athens, Georgia, and uh, we, it was started in 2000, and it, and it came out of a of a of a sad situation and a tragedy. Um, it's named in honor of Nucci Phillips, who was a, a student at the University of Georgia and a, a talented guitarist and musician. And he was diagnosed with depression as a teenager and went through all the ups and downs of, of various treatments and, and therapy and, and trying to find relief with that. And while he was away in senior year of college, he was struggling and he reached out, did what he was supposed to do to, to try to get some help. And it was going to be like a month before he could get in to see someone and before he was able to get in and get any, um, any treatment he took his own life. And so in the aftermath of that, his mother, Linda, wanted to do something in, in Nucci's memory and also to, to help break the stigma of, uh, of mental illness and to, and to encourage people to be proactive to, to get help if they're, if they're struggling. And so the way that she did that is she started Nucci's space, which is right on the edge of campus in Athens and right on the edge of downtown so um, we're able to to be a really visible place in the community where we can. Um, uh, so our focus is on is on musicians and 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 just so it happens, like students are a very big part of what we do as well. Um, and so the way that we do that is we have rehearsal spaces where where people can come in and rent them out by the hour. They're very affordable, eight to ten dollars an hour, which is you know dirt cheap. Um, and then we've got music gear that you can rent. Like just the other night, there was a band playing at the 40 watt and they, their bass amp blew up somewhere in route to their show that, that night. And then so people can come in and rent equipment affordably, um, both on the road or to use in the house. And then, um, and then what we do then, so that's like kind of the musician support that we do. But then the, the bigger vision is that we also we're very we're big advocates for people to be proactive with their mental health. And so we partner with counselors, MDs, psychiatrists, eye doctors, ear doctors, you name it in, in Athens who um, will take referrals from us. And so we have a counseling advocate on site Monday through Friday where if somebody is you know. For example, maybe they've been coming in and practicing with their band for six months and life's been going along great and it's never even occurred to them that they may need access to mental health resources. But if you're if you're already in an environment where you're comfortable, we've got a little coffee bar, people come in, use the Wi-Fi, and then life throws something at you that you weren't prepared for and, and maybe you don't have friends or family who feel comfortable talking about the subject of, of mental illness because, you know, unfortunately there, there's, there is still a stigma and there is still, still something, something that a lot of people are not comfortable talking with. You can just ask if, uh, you know, you just want some more information about mental health resources. And then you just, you can sit down with a one-on-one -on -one professional, talk about what it is that you're struggling with. And then based on what you're able to afford, we can um, provide subsidized, um, uh, referrals to, to counselors and doctors and uh, you know just just by having that conversation that 
you know, just because we're there, somebody might, um, who may be otherwise, it can be really intimidating to, to Google your symptoms, you know, if you've, if you've ever been struggling with something and you can talk yourself in or out of about anything in isolation. But if you can sit down with a person who is going to encourage you to, to get help and to, and to, you know, have a, a non-judgment free or a judgment free zone, um, we're just able to really, uh, to really help uh, help people get connected and get to resources that they wouldn't otherwise. And like I said, we are a nonprofit. We don't um, we help subsidize if people don't have insurance or they're completely broke. Um, you know, that's the last thing they need is another stressor um, of, of meeting if they can't afford the uh, the uh, the help. So, so that's what we do. A big part of what we do is is we raise money. We're we're completely um, uh, we don't have any any government assistance or anything. It's, it's all, we get some, some grants and, and private donations and, and fundraisers and, um, we'll be our, our 20th year in 2020. It started in 2000. So we're reputable. We've been around a while and, um, we're able to help lots of people. So Dave, tell everybody where they can go to, uh, to find out more info. Yep. So the website is org. And it's nuci.org. And then um, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. All right. So also, you guys have a uh, an annual event coming up, I believe, in February with the Drive By Truckers. Why don't you tell everybody about that? Because I'm sure there's some crossover between our yeah, audience there's and theirs. Good symmetry there. The first time I ever saw the Drive By Truckers, it was opening for the Black Crows. So uh, very cool. All Very comes cool. around that way. And, and so, yeah, um, I moved to Athens in 2012 and um, I was a drive-by truckers fan. And so I just, I, I started volunteering at Nucci Space while I was getting acclimated to Athens. And, and I, just because they were really outspoken, um, um, I've been big supporters of Nucci Space. And so, and so, yeah, every February they play uh, at, at the 40 Watt and they, it's, they call it their homecoming, their heathens homecoming, which is the sort of the pet name for the, drive by trucker fan club is the heathens and um and then um and then this this really generous amazing community of fans that all culminates then the weekend of uh uh that lands on valentine's day weekend this year in february where we'll do a big uh silent auction fundraiser in uh, at, at nucci space there on the on the saturday of the homecoming weekend and we're really fortunate um just with the the rich music history um i don't know if it if any of you saw widespread panic is a really big, um, um, supporter of ours too. We just raffled off, um, a, a winner just won tickets to every widespread panic show in 2020 where they agreed uh, to let us sell raffle tickets to, uh, where a, a lucky fan, you know, is going to get, get sh- tickets to every show that they tour next year. So, um, and then the, the REM connection in Athens is really strong. They've been, they're very supportive of our work as well. The, the steeple that's attached to the church or it used to be attached to the church where they played their first concert, um, when they were just coming up is actually right in our backyard at Nucci space. And it's a historical landmark that we've helped renovate now. And, um, so we're just, we're right in the thick of a lot of, uh, a lot of really supportive and, um, you know, it's just, it's a really supportive music community in Athens, and um, I'm just really grateful to be there. Well, Dave, we hope uh, we hope we can raise uh, a decent amount of money for you guys. Um, like I, I, I've talked to you about this before, I, 
I really believe in this and, and how for ever since I kind of got involved with the drive by truckers community and, and know how, uh, how big of a deal that is with them. So, uh, we really appreciate you giving us a few minutes to explain it to everybody. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate you guys reaching out and, um, you know, just, uh, helping us spread the word of what we do and we're in, we're in, it's really, a it's a really great community and, uh, and a really, um, you know, just, just great thing to everybody who listens to this podcast and is in this, you know, the kind of this, uh, this music community, it's, uh, it's a great way to, to support artists and, uh, keep people healthy and, and, and keep on, uh, making great art. So thanks for what you guys do and for, for, uh, for the support. We appreciate it. Oh, no, absolutely. And, uh, any, anything we can do to, to help out, uh, I, albeit perhaps in a, in a small way, but, uh, uh, we're, we're very happy to do so. And, uh, we thank you for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. All right, everybody. So, uh, go online and, uh, Let's get let's start let's start bidding on these uh these great black crows artifacts that we have and also uh, a chance to uh, come on our show and be our be our host. All right, here's Stephen Hyde. Right, Ian, this is a this is a really cool uh, moment for us in our podcast. Um, I've been a big fan of this guy ever since I started listening to his podcast, Celebration Rock, and uh, he's done a lot. He's written Twilight of the Gods. He uh, writes for Up Rocks. He, like I said, he has a podcast called Celebration Rock, and uh, I guess more importantly for this podcast purpose, he co-authored uh, Hard to Handle with Steve Gorman. So it is uh, it's a great honor to welcome to the state of Amorca, Mr. Stephen Hyden. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. No problem. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, I got to ask you, uh, selfishly, um, Celebration Rock went on hiatus for a while, and then you, you dropped a uh, random episode on us a week or so ago. Are we going to get more, or is that something that's kind of getting put on the back burner again? Yeah, I I think it's going to be on the back burner for a while. I, I actually have some podcast projects coming up in 2020 uh, that are going to prevent me from doing Celebration Rock, but I'm actually going to be podcasting more than ever uh, next year. So hopefully if you like Celebration Rock, you'll like the shows I'm going to be doing next year. And unfortunately, I can't quite give too many details about them, those shows at this point, but um, I've started working on them already, and I think they're going to be pretty cool. So uh, like some of them, there's like three different shows actually that I'm working on right now, two of which are like, talk show type things and one of and the other one is like a narrative type show um so i, I i'm thrilled that you guys love celebration rock that's really cool it, it was so cool that that show found an audience because um you know it wasn't part of a podcast network i didn't really do any promotion for it outside of my twitter feed so the fact that anyone found it at all is like really gratifying to me um as much as I love that show, I think people are going to like these other shows I'm working on. So hopefully those shows will also be to your liking 
once they premiere in uh, 2020. Well, you have for sure uh, piqued my interest with that. And I was uh, for everybody, I was telling Stephen before we came on, um, the, the great thing about Celebration Rock is it's pretty eclectic. Uh, you know, you, you guys, I mean, you... Uh, you did like your uh, Bruce Springsteen series, and then you know you may do uh, Pearl Jam, and then you did do the National. Right. And um, I have really become a huge fan, especially the last two War on Drugs albums, solely because of your podcast. Oh and, man! Uh, and I've I've picked up a couple of National albums, and I found with the National you can't dive in completely all at one time because their songs really have to grow on you. And so, right. um, whereas like a lot of bands, when I get into them, I'll go buy all their albums at once with the national, I'm taking my time, a couple of months, you know, <laughs> with, with each one and, uh, and getting into it. And, uh, just from, uh, from my perspective, a big thank you for those, for those podcasts, because it's really, it's really helped my, uh, broaden my musical horizons a little bit. Well, man, that means so much to me. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Those are two of my favorite bands, War on Drugs and the National, and the fact that, you got into them through that show just means the world to me. And it's so great to be on this show too, because we also all love the black crows as well. We've loved them for a really long time. Uh, so it's really fun to talk about that uh, as well. Well, I tell people all the time before Gorman did this book cycle um, for me, the two Steve Gorman interviews that you have to listen to uh, are Dean Delray's let there be talk with him and then the um, interview that you did with him. And when I heard that you were going to be writing this book, especially after that interview that you did with him, it's like 90 minutes long. Right. Uh, I was like, this is, it's going to be done correctly and it's going to be great. And uh, I believe it was about a year or so after it was announced before it finally came out. And uh, I know for Ian and I and everybody that listens to this podcast uh, was about as highly anticipated as a, of a book as, as I can remember, at least for me. Well, that's so nice to hear you say that. I mean, it was amazing to have Steve on my podcast because I got to know Steve, um, I think it was about 2012 or so that we met. We, we actually met online. And the way I remember it is he started following me on Twitter. And I remember his, his username on Twitter is like Steve Gorman Sports. And I remember seeing that name and thinking like, okay, I know Steve Gorman. He's the drummer of the Black Crows. And Steve was actually my favorite member of the Black Crows, like when I was a kid, because I thought it was so cool that he wore like the suit, you know, like on like Southern <laughs> Harmony era. Like I just thought that was the coolest thing. It's such a unique thing, especially like in early '90s rock, to have a drummer in a suit and like he had really short hair at that time. So I thought, you know, so he he he'd always stuck in my in my memory because of that. But then the sports thing kind of threw me off because. I'm like, well, is this a different Steve Gorman? You know? And then, of course, I looked it up and I realized that he was hosting a sports talk radio show in, in Nashville at the time. And then after that, we started, you know, talking and we became friends. But with Steve, it was always, you know, Steve is not the kind of guy who, you know, sort of naturally reflects on the past. He's not a guy who's like sort of like reliving his past glories all the time. Um so like whenever we would talk, we never talked about the Black Crows. We would just talk about sort of normal friend type stuff. We would talk about sports. We would talk about a movie you just saw or a TV show you were watching. So there were all these questions that I wanted to ask him about being in a band because 
you know, even as he became my friend, he was, I was still a fan of his music. So to have him on the podcast, it was sort of, you know, this, this construct where it wasn't a normal conversation where I could ask him all the questions that I wanted to know, uh, that I could never ask him in like in a normal sort of friendship kind of conversation, but I could ask him on a podcast. So that was so much fun. And then, of course, once we did the book together, it was that times a hundred, you know, because <laughs> uh, you know, because basically the way we started writing the book was, you know, I, I did close to forty hours of interviews with him, where we where he just told me the story of the Black Crows, basically, and I was recording it the whole time, and we had all these transcripts, and I, for the sort of the the initial rough draft, I took his words in those transcripts and I turned them into a rough draft. I you know, sort of formed them into chapters and then I sent them to Steve and then he would like rewrite them. And then I would sort of rework what he, what he wrote. And then we kind of went from there. So it was like always his words, but it kind of started from this place of doing these interviews. Um, so anyway, like it was just a great opportunity for me I'm like, like in one respect being his friend, but then another respect being a fan and having an opportunity to just like ask him all the questions that I wanted to know as a fan, but, but like, I wouldn't have asked him as a friend. Right. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, it's like when you're hanging out with your friend, you don't ask them about their job. You know, right. it's like the most boring thing for a person to talk about, but this book from my perspective and 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 the podcast as well it was just a great excuse for me to kind of geek out as a fan while also still being a friend now how much how much of the material that that you had to work with didn't make it into the book because i mean there's quite a lot of stuff in there but i would imagine there was much much more yeah i mean there's quite a bit that didn't that, that didn't make it in i mean yeah, I mean, Steve, I think, has joked about this online already, but at, at one point, we had a draft of the book that was like 250,000 words, which is like a ridiculously long book. I mean, I don't think I don't think Moby Dick is even that long. You know, like, like, like if that had been published, it would have been like a 900-page book, which was obviously not going to be tenable. Um, and, of course, it was my responsibility as the co-writer to, like, chop that down uh, to a more manageable length um you know i mean the thing with a book like this is that you know steve has like an infinite amount of stories about being in the band and and all the sort of adventures and misadventures that they had over the years and when you're writing a book like this it comes down to an issue of like okay we have so many great stories what are the stories that help tell the larger story of the band? You know, like what are, what are the stories that can kind of signify movements in this band's story? And, and, and I think that was my role in a way as the co-writer to help figure that out. Because I mean, like, again, like in the book, like all the words are, are Steve's, you know, like Steve is, a, he's a really good writer he's a really good storyteller. I think, I think my role was to help sort of take all that material and shape it into an actual 
coherent narrative that people would be able to follow. Um, and, and to, you know, like there's like a million stories about Chris and Rich getting into fights backstage, for instance, <laughs> but like, what are the like three or four most important, you know, examples of that, that can kind of represent, you know, the dozens of stories that we're not telling in this book, you know, those are the types of decisions that you have to make when, you know, when you're writing a book like this, that has to, um, do justice to the story, but is also going to hold the reader's attention. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's people out there that would want to hear every single story. Uh, we, we both would. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but you know, like, like for me, like whenever people say like, I read this book in a day or two days and like, I couldn't put it down. Like to me, I always take that as a compliment. Like for me, and it's a compliment to Steve too, but I think that speaks to the pacing of the book. I knocked, it, like, I, I, I knocked it out in under 48 hours. Right. And it's like, and you're going to read it that fast if you're a super fan, but it's also, it also speaks to the storytelling of the book because as much as you might want as a fan to know every kind of interesting bit of gossip, gossip that occurred behind the scenes to actually read that in the book at, at some point it becomes redundant and kind of boring to read that stuff. And, 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 and I've even heard, you know, people make the comment of, of uh, you know, like with this band that there is sort of a, a repetitive nature to the story of this book that like they they take one step forward and they take two steps back and they take another step forward and it's two steps back and it becomes almost maddening to read it after a while. And I think a little bit of that needs to be in the book because that's true to sort of the story of this band. You know, there is sort of a self-defeating aspect uh, to this band and that needs to be conveyed. But like, if you have too much of that, it just becomes tiresome. So it's about finding the right balance. I think with that, you know, which, which makes a, a successful book. One of the cool things about his interviews that he's doing, it seems like he's telling a different story that was left out of the book on every interview, like on the Rolling Stone interview that came out yesterday or the day before he talks about the show in New Orleans where they were going to play for all the uh, music, uh, the uh, radio guys and, right. and Stone Gossard comes in backstage and Chris loses it. And, you know, that's a new story. And it, he's done a good job, I think, of being like, oh, here's another good story. It didn't make the book, but it's very interesting. And so I can imagine that was difficult for you to try to edit those down as the ones that you thought would flow well. And the ones you had, you had to kind of strike a balance between people like me and Ian who, you know, we want to know about those, the session in New Orleans, you know, where they recorded Exit <laughs> versus the people that are like, oh, I heard this was a wild band. I want to read the book. And I feel like you did right. a good job. Of, I feel like you did a good job of walking that tightrope. Yeah. I mean, the New Orleans story that you're referring to, that was, I think, in the book at some point. And I might have been the one that sort of pushed that out of the book. And I think my reasoning was that we already know that that Chris is insane. We already know that he's kind of like an asshole for like lack of a better term. And it's like, if he, he just acts like an asshole repeatedly in this book, again, it just becomes tiresome. It's like the reader gets the point at some point. It's like in Steve has like a million stories of like Chris acting out. And it's like, and if you tell every single one, you know, it just loses the impact at some point. So yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Like where, some of that stuff has more power if he can just like kind of t tell it on a podcast when he's promoting the book. 
Um, it's tough because again, it's like there's so much good material on one level, but on the, you know, on the other hand, you just don't, I, I think you, it's like giving someone too much chocolate. You know, it's like, if you give so much too much, if you give them too much chocolate, you get gut rot, you know? And I think it's like, if you have too many extreme stories about Chris Robinson acting out, it's just not that effective over the long haul. And even the book, the way it is, I've, you know, I've read complaints where people say like, Oh, this is kind of a repetitive structure. It's like these guys always, you know, like they get some success and then they sort of self-destruct and it's like, it's the same thing over and over which is true, but it's also like, well, that's the story of the band, you know? It's like you can't yeah, I, really – it's like you, you have to have some of that in the book because that's just the way it was. That's the story of this band, and it, and it's continuing to this day, you know, uh, with them. Uh, so, yeah, again, it's just trying to – it's trying to find the right balance of, like, not having overkill but also doing justice uh, to, to reality. Yeah, I mean, I've read, you know, a ton of uh, – of- books on the subject of rock uh, you know over over time and and several books of of, of a similar nature and i really feel that it, it it is one of the best books i've i've read i know i'm biased to the material but oh, i think it you. does i think it does strike that balance and it really i mean even steve says himself that you know it, it, it does tend to be a bit repetitive because the cycle of those two brothers is kind of you know wash rinse repeat like they kind of do the same thing <laughs> over and right. over again so I mean, I, I really, I really think it was uh, fantastic. I mean, did, did was there any concern that uh, you know releasing the book, you know, might start some conflict with between him and the uh, and the Robinson brothers or anything like that? Well, I mean, I think that ship had sailed already by the time that Steve decided that he was that he wanted to do this book, and I, you know, and I and I feel like Steve has been asked this. You know, especially as the reunion tours come up, it's like, well, do you regret doing this book because it sort of torched your idea of, of doing the reunion tour? And I think in Steve's mind, he already decided that he did not want to be involved with the Black Crows anymore. I think he had already turned the page uh, w- with the band. And, you know, it's difficult with him because I think on one hand, he looks at the band as his life's work and as like the greatest thing musically that he'll probably ever do. And he says that at the end of the book about how, you know, he has this great band that he's in right now called trigger hippie, which I just saw actually, uh, this, this past weekend and they were, they were phenomenal. But he says in the book that, you know, it's like, I'm never going to replicate what it was like being in the black crows, like at their peak, like when that band was, uh, you know, really cooking and it had like their best lineup in place, you know, there was, there was a sort of musical creativity and communication going on that I'm never going to replicate. But I'm also at a point in my life where I don't want to go back to that because I know what the price of that is. And I know the sort of like psychic warfare that goes on, you know, when you're in that kind of situation. And I think Steve's at a point in his life, and I don't want to speak for Steve too much, but it's not really worth being in that sort of dysfunctional situation, you know, whatever kind of musical gratification you might get out of it, the sort of negativity that's sort of inherent in that situation isn't really worth it at this point in his life. So I think he had already made peace with that before he decided to write the book. 
Um, and the way that this <laughs> reunion tour has played out, I think has only confirmed that he had the right instincts in that regard for him. Well, Stephen, how, what is your history with the band as far as when you got into them and um, just kind of the, the role that they've played in, in your musical journey over the last, you know, 25 or 30 years? Yeah, I mean, the Black Crows, I remember when they came out, I bought Shake Your Money Maker from Kmart on cassette <laughs> when I was, I think, 12 years old. And that was, and I, I'm trying to remember the song that made me want to get that album. It was probably either Jealous Again or um, She Talks to Angels. So it was like around that time, like when those songs were breaking. Or in, in like, Hard to Handle, I think, was already out at that point. But the Black Crows, I think, had a really interesting they, they arrived at a really interesting moment, I think, in rock history, in that they were close enough to what was going on in rock in the late 80s that they didn't seem totally out of place where you could see them sort of fitting in with like a with, with Guns N' Roses and maybe to some degree Motley Crue you know those bands were both starting to sort of glam down at that point like Motley Crue had sort of taken off the makeup and and Guns N' Roses had certainly taken off the makeup and then they're starting to wear blue jeans and like have more of like a gritty style. So the Black Crows were kind of a part of that, but they were also separate from that. You could also, I feel like I knew this already as a, as a kid, that they were different from what else was going on in rock in like 1990. And I, I remember for me at that time, they were really attractive because I was already starting to listen to classic rock radio. So I was already aware of like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and starting to get into like Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And the Black Crows, I remember, like were such an attractive band to me because they were sort of the closest thing to that that, w that was modern uh, that was existing in music at that time. And then, of course, you know, like the year after Shake Your Money Maker comes out, that's when you start having Nirvana and Pearl Jam and like the alternative rock bands that were coming out. And that was also a huge thing for me at that time. But I really feel like the Black Crows were sort of like a missing link between alternative rock and sort of like the hair metal that was happening in the 80s. Um, that's been kind of lost in music history. Like they don't get talked about in that respect. Um, I mean, I really think that like the Black Crows and Pearl Jam are kind of like an, they're sort of like long lost brothers to me in a way, like where I feel like those two bands, they have a lot of the same influences. And like they, they both ended up working with Brendan O'Brien, like Brendan O'Brien was the engineer of Shake Your Money Maker. And I think he, I think he also worked on uh, Southern Harmony and he really should have ended up being the producer of like a morica but like the robinsons didn't want him in the picture so like brendan o'brien ended up producing the second pearl jam record and then he ended up doing like stone temple pilots and he became this like big alt rock producer um and of course pearl jam blew up in a big way and they ended up being kind of like the most popular rock band of that era um 
well, the Black Crows became more of an underground band after that. Yeah, I, I really think of them as like, uh, you, you know, I, I feel like they get they get overlooked when we talk about '90s rock because they weren't really part of any particular scene. You know, they, you you can't really group them in with other bands. They were always this very sort of individual band uh, that was sort of defiantly individual. You know, they they made a point of not fitting in. Some I think often to their detriment, but I also respect that they didn't do that. So yeah, it, it's it's funny because at some point, like in the '90s, I lost track with them. Where like like I loved Shake Your I loved Shake Your Money Maker, and I loved Southern Harmony, and then around Amorica, which is a record I love now, but at the time I kind of fell off track with them because I was so into the alternative rock thing, and the Black Crows were sort of associated with this sort of like hippie rock thing and like for me and my friends like hippies were like the antithesis of cool (laughs) anything associated with hippies like you could not really embrace it at all so i kind of i kind of put the black crows to the side for a while and it wasn't until like the early 2000s like on the on the lions tour i saw them at a casino show in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I was reviewing the show. It was my first newspaper job. And it was a phenomenal show. It just knocked me on my ass. And it totally got me back into the band. And I was back into the band for life after that. And, of course, I went back and I listened to Amorica and I listened to Three Snakes and One Charm and By Your Side, which is, like I think, the, the weakest record of their career but uh, you know so still some pretty good songs um and of course lions and then so 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 that kind of got me back into them but yeah they were uh, they're a fascinating band to me because they just kind of made it as hard as possible for people to get into them because i think i think it's natural for people to get into music through scenes or, or through genres. It's like, I like this group of bands and I'm going to listen to this group of bands and like black crows, even like when they kind of like, you know, they were a rock band. They were never an alternative rock band. They were sort of like a jam rock band, but not really. They were kind of a Southern rock band, but not really, you know, it, it just made it difficult. It's like you had to go to them specifically it's like I'm going to be a Black Crows fan. I'm not gonna, <laughs> it's not like I'm a Southern rock fan. It's not that I'm a jam rock fan. It's not that I'm an alternative rock fan. I'm going to go to this band specifically. Uh, maybe that's why people who love them are so dedicated to them, because it's like it had, you had to go on a specific journey just to like them. Yeah, it it was crazy. But yeah, it's, this is a very rambling answer to your question. But like, <laughs> as uh, you know, as somebody that. You know, spends spends a large portion of their life dealing with music, uh, and you're a journalist, of course. Uh, early on, for the Black Crows, they were often compared to the Stones, the Faces, uh, you know, things like that. Do you do you feel that those comparisons were fair, or do you do you think that's just lazy journalism, as we like to call it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was. I you know, I, I mean, I think it's a compliment to them, and it was part of like why I got into them because, like I said. Before, what I would appeal to them to be 
as like a young kid is that they reminded me of the classic rock bands that I was starting to love. Like I was mm. starting to get into the Rolling Stones and I was starting to get into Led Zeppelin and while also listening to modern rock bands, but like Nirvana, for instance, wasn't like you, it wasn't as obvious that they were connected to the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. and it wasn't. And I think with Pearl Jam, it was like, you know, they were more, I think, overt about call, you know, you know, they would cover Pink Floyd songs and cover Neil Young songs. So they were more overt about their classic rock influences, but with the black crows, you know, like the way they played music, the way they dressed, obviously their covers. I mean, it was much more overt that they were right. part of that tradition. And, you know, what I think is lazy journalism isn't comparing the Black Crows to those bands. It's saying that they're just like ripping them off. I right. think that's a little lazy. Because what I would say is that when you talk about the blues, for instance, that the blues has always been this sort of community style music, that it's like a well that people from various generations draw from, whether it's, you know, drawing certain musical structures or certain lyrics or certain riffs, you know, it's like this idea that like, it's not so much about originality. It's about putting your own spin on this community type music. And I always felt like the black girls were extending that, um, in an era where not many people were doing it, you know, that, it, you know, another thing that set them apart in the nineties is that, you know, there was really no blues based tradition in rock mm-hmm. anymore. You know, even a band, you know, like I, I, I liken them to Pearl Jam before, like, you know, there's really no blues influence in Pearl Jam's music. That's like, like overt, you know, they weren't really drawing from that in, in any kind of explicit way in the, in the same way that the black crows were, you know, the black crows to me were, were, were very much kind of plugging into a, sort of roots style rock and roll blues music folk music country music uh you know sort of an american music style it's interesting because i I think bands after them started doing that i think if you want to talk about sort of like the alt country movement that started uh which i mean i guess it started around the time the black crows came out but was really starting to come into effect like in the mid 90s like with you know Wilco and Sunbolt coming out of Uncle Tupelo. Right. I mean, I think they were coming from a similar place that the Black Crows were coming from. I, when the, I think there were more, more bands kind of drawing from that as the 90s progressed. But like with that first record, I think it was really unique to have a band that was playing rock and roll music from like a pretty street level, gritty, you know, non-bullshit type stance and and i think that's what's always endeared them to me at that time that like for me and and like i'm sure lots of other kids like me they were sort of like the first rock and roll band that was new that was like that right that came out right. at that time um and when you talk to steve and, and even chris and rich talk about this you know like a huge influence on them was the replacements and the replacement you know and I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm talking to you from Minneapolis, which is the home of the replacements. Right. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're still a religion here. 
locally. <laughs> um, and I love the replacements as much as any, as much as any band I've ever loved. You know, they were sort of doing that. They, they were doing that in the eighties in more of like a punk sort of indie rock type of way. And what the black crows, I think did differently than the replacements is that they had that rock, they had that attitude and they had that sense of chaos but they also had a management structure that put them in more of a mainstream, uh, you know, world where kids like me, who lived in the middle of Wisconsin, and you know, I didn't have cool record stores in my town. I didn't have, you know, this was pre-internet, so you're relying on rock radio and MTV basically to have music exposed to you. It was. Uh, it was a real gift to have a band like the Black Crows coming on in between, you know, Mariah Carey videos and Paula Abdul videos and Wilson Phillips videos, you know, <laughs> it was like this is a band that was connected to the continuum of like rock and roll uh, in a way that really no other band was at that time in the mainstream anyway. Uh, so that was really special. I think about them. Uh, and it makes me really grateful that I, I got to hear that, hear those records uh, at that time in my life. Steven, you're, you've got a book coming out uh, about Radiohead, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But there's some parallels, I think, between Radiohead and, and the Black Crows in that um, when I think I of, love this, I love this. By well, the way. When, <laughs> when I think I of when I think of goes. bands that have recorded some of their best material and either don't put it on an album or put it on a B-side. There's three that I listen to that come to mind. It's the Black Crows, it's Radiohead, and Oasis. And right. all three of those, if you go to one of their shows, Oasis put out a, the master plan was nothing but B-sides. And some people think this is the best album they've ever put out. And, and right. as, as I've gotten into, also I've gotten into Radiohead more because of your show, especially uh, in Rainbows. I started, you know, getting to Radiohead more and, and and finding out about all of these unreleased tracks and B-sides that they have. And the Crows are the same way. The Crows have left some of their best I think Exit's a top 5 Crow song. And and right. they they've left that on left that on the floor. I kind of get your thoughts on that. Like uh we talk about if you take the B-sides for By Your Side and swap three or four songs out, that's a completely different album. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Black, Black Crows, it's like a little bit different than, than those other bands. I think like in the case of Oasis, for instance, you know, I think they were coming at it from a very, you know, staunchly British point of view, which was, you know, they didn't look at, they didn't look at it as like burying those songs. You know, they looked at it as like, we're putting out singles in the same way that like the Smiths put out singles and the jam put out singles and you know like in england i think it, it, there's just there's there's more of a tradition of like bands putting out albums and putting out singles and putting out like single specific b-sides that are on albums that still have an audience and that are going to be heard by people and they're going to be collected and they're not going to have the same prominence maybe as if they were on an album but they're not being completely buried Whereas with the Black Crows, like you mentioned, Exit, for instance, I mean, I, that song still hasn't been released, right. you know, and there's like other uh, songs from that session, uh, the, the, the New Orleans session that they did in uh, 93 with at Daniel Lanois studio, which Steve has shared with me, like the songs that they did from that time. And it's like 
tremendous songs that kind of capture a great midpoint between, you know, the sort of hard rock directness of Southern Harmony and like a more sort of psychedelic atmospheric feel that you have in Amorica, which I think for a lot of fans is like a total sweet spot. Yes. Like, give me more mm-hmm. of that. And in the Black Crows, I think there was this attitude coming from Chris specifically that like, if you wrote a song at a specific moment in time, if it wasn't during an album session, we're not going to put it out. You know, I mean, Steve writes about, he talks about that in the book about how, like when they made America, that all this material that they had kind of worked up before they, they started officially working on an album was set aside because Chris had this idea that like the, the album making experience had to be a separate thing. And that they couldn't just like take songs that they had already worked on, that the songs had to be worked on during this sort of, you know, demarcated point, like moment in time that was for Amorica. So like all this great material that they had already kind of worked up got set aside at that point, which um, just seems like, again, like a self-destructive type thing. You know, because again, like in the case of Radiohead, you know, they have a lot of great B-sides, but like that stuff did come out. You know, it's not like it's not like they said, well, we're not going to even put it out. Yes, true. You know, and um, to me, this speaks to a larger frustration that I have with the the tending of the legacy of the Black Crows, which I think has been piss poor, essentially, you know, basically that you look at most bands and. They, you know, like bands that aren't active and they will typically have some sort of archival release come out every once every like year or two, whether it's like a box set or it's like a, you know, a, you know like remastering an old album with like extra songs or like putting out like a live album that didn't come out. You know, even like the replacements, like one of the most dysfunctional bands ever. Like they put out a great box set earlier this year uh, about "Don't Tell a Soul," where they re- like they remastered the album, but then they also like presented like an alternate version of the album along with like a great concert from that era. And basically, like the purpose of that box set was to say, "Don't tell a soul." not the best regarded replacements album, but we're, we're going to present this in a way that is going to make fans sort of re-listen to this record and kind of reappreciate it. And they did a great job with that. The Black Crows have never done anything like that. They never like have done anything, any kind of archival release. They've never done, you know, and uh, there's, uh, and, and by the way, there's tons of stuff that they have not put out. There's like great you know, outtakes that they haven't put out. There's like lots of, I'm sure, live albums that they have, like like soundboard stuff that mm-hmm. fans would love that they have not put out. You know, doing stuff like that, it's important because it waves the flag for a band. It keeps them going. You know, it like it it's an excuse for people to write about the band again. You know, like I I just did a story about um, Monster, the REM record mm-hmm. that came out in '94 which is not a, you know, kind of a controversial record in their discography. A lot of people don't like Monster. They put out a five-disc box set with outtakes. They did, like, sort of, like, a really cool, like, remix of it that, like, makes it sound mm-hmm. different. They put on, like, a really cool concert with it. I did an interview 
interview with Peter Buck where he talked about that record. And Peter Buck, you know, Peter Buck is not a guy that's like living in the past. He he's like in probably four or five different bands at this point. You know, he doesn't, you know, he's doing his own thing. But I remember I asked him specifically about this and he said, look, I think R.E.M. is a great band. And it's like, I don't mind talking about this or I don't mind doing archival releases because I want people to know this is a great band. And like when you re-release stuff, it's an opportunity for a new audience to rediscover the music. And I just don't think that mentality has ever existed with the Black Crows. I think there's people obviously like us that already know this band and they love them. But there's not really ever an opportunity for people that don't know who they are to find out why they were special. And it's like, why not release a show from 1996 that is just fucking on fire? That shows like this band, like how great they can be. Release that show. Right. And yeah. like and have people review it and have, you know, have websites to talk about it. And it's an excuse for like someone who's 22 years old who maybe doesn't know why the Black Crows were great to hear this band in a new way, you know? That's why you do stuff like that. This band has never done anything like that, and I think it's really disappointing. And honestly, like, and I've said this in other interviews, as much as Chris and Rich might hate Steve's book, this is the first time in years that anyone has done anything to try to, like, define this band's legacy. And to like talk about like why they were great, um, and it helps them even if they hate it. You know, it, it's ginned up some excitement about this band for the first time in years because they won't do it, and they didn't do it in their solo projects. They wouldn't play Black Crow songs. Chris never played Black Crow songs in Chris Robinson Brotherhood. Magpie Salute did it towards the end when they were so desperate to draw fans. Like when I saw them, they played one Black Crows song and it was great. You should be playing every other song, Black Crows songs. When I saw Noel Gallagher play a solo show, every other song was an Oasis show, was an Oasis song. You know, because I think as much as he might hate Liam, he still knows that Oasis, like that legacy, is his legacy. And it needs, someone needs to wave the flag. And, you know, Chris and Rich are doing it now because it benefits their bottom line. Mm-hmm. But like, you fuckers should have been doing it for years before now. You've let this shit languish for years, and it's worth a lot less now than it would have been, you know, four, five, six years ago if you had been doing this when you should have been doing it. So I don't know. That's a little, little rant there, <laughs> but I but I feel strongly about that. It's like. You need to tend to this is a garden that you need to tend to, you know, and if you neglect it, it will wither and die. I agree. Oh, it's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, the only the only other band I've ever seen that's worse at maintaining their legacy is Van Halen. So, well, but even they got together with Dave and they did some cool tours, you know, that's true. You know, and it, it kind of reminded people like, oh, and. You know, as weird as they are, it would have been cool if Michael Anthony was in the band and not, you know, Eddie's kid on bass. <laughs> you know, I, I think even that was like, well, it's ex- it's exciting, you know, to have uh, 
I mean, it's like Eddie and Alex found a way to reconcile with David Lee Roth, but like Chris and Rich can't invite even Mark Ford back into the band, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? It's like, really? Okay. Like, you don't think fans would want to see Mark Ford? Yeah. With I think even if Mark Ford were in the band and not Steve, fans would be like, okay, I, well, at least Mark Ford. I'm going to hear Mark Ford and Rich play together, and that would be pretty exciting. But it's like, you can't even do that. You were just in a band with him, and you can't even say the band's name when you do yeah. the interviews. Like, how pathetic is that? I don't know. It's just maddening. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the big uh, you know gripes of uh, this whole reunion thing. It's like they they've just... Rich is kind of pretending like the that magpie situation never happened and 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 yeah. things like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of odd. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, again, I'm not an impartial <laughs> observer here. Steve is my friend. I love Steve. I'm gonna side with Steve, you know, <laughs> no matter what, as you would with any friend. And I'll say this too: like, if you're a fan of this band and you want to go see them like Chris and Rich together play these songs because you love that album and you want to go out and celebrate it with your friends and have a great time. Like, I'm not going to poo poo that. Like you should go do that. Like have fun, have a great night. What pisses me off is this, uh, uh this tour cycle, the, the, the interviews that they've done, uh, where, you know, I listened to the Howard Stern interview that they did mm-hmm. and I had to shut it off. And I don't know if you listened to this interview, but there's a part of the interview like where Chris and Rich actually say that the reason why they didn't get along is because the rest of the band was sort of conspiring against them. That there was this divide and conquer uh, mentality in the band and that the rest of the band felt like if Chris and Rich ever got together, that that would be a bad thing. So we have to make sure that these, these guys keep arguing and like they actually say that in the Howard Stern interview. And I love Howard Stern as an interviewer, but at that moment in time, I was like, if you don't call bullshit on this obviously incoherent idea, then I don't know how good of an interview interviewer you actually are. Cause it's like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense at all. Like Mark, like Chris and Rich argued because like Mark Ford and Eddie Harsh, like thought it was in their best interest <laughs> for them not to get along or like Johnny Colt was like this Machiavellian figure making sure that like Chris and Rich would keep arguing and like why would that benefit the rest of the guys in the band for these guys to be self-destructive and to derail the band whenever they were about to be successful it doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever you know and like that's what they're, and like that's the justification that they're using in these interviews to not include the rest of the band. And it's like, why not just say we don't want to share any of the money? That's why <laughs> we're doing it this way, because we're, you know, we know that if we we'd have to pay these guys more. That's why we don't want, you know, at least be fucking honest about it. But to spin <laughs> this ridiculous idea that like. Eddie Harsh is like Machiavelli and he's like conspiring to keep you guys arguing. It's just, it's, it honestly offends me and it makes me angry when I hear that kind of shit. Like, it's like, if you guys want a tour, that's cool, but like, don't fucking 
like show some respect to these other guys. Show some respect to your collaborators. Yeah. You know, you know, like don't paint them as like. I mean, it just reminds me of like a person who. You know, it's like you divorce your wife because you're unhappy. And it's like, well, I'm going to marry a younger wife and then I'm going to be happy. It's like, no, you're not. You're always going to be unhappy because of who you are. It's right. like, it doesn't matter how many wives you marry. You know, it just reminds me like, well, we're going to get new guys in here and then we'll be happy. You know, it's the other guys' fault. That's why we're always arguing. No, it's <laughs> not. You got your your miserable dudes. That's yeah. why you are always fighting. You know, it's not the other people's fault, but I don't know. I have a feeling that they're going to discover that uh, yeah. sooner rather than later. But anyway. Well, I mean, you know, Steve even says in the book that they, they often would manipulate the narrative of the band to suit themselves or to suit, uh, you know, certain ideals that they were trying to put forward when really it wasn't you know, the truth of what was going on. So it's, it's interesting to see that that might be what's now continuing. Yeah. I, and, uh, again, it's just like, if you want to do a tour on your own, that's fine. If people want to see it, that's great. Celebrate the music. I'm glad that someone is playing these songs and, you know, sort of carrying it forward and, you know, celebrating, you know, this band's legacy, I guess. And, the weird way that this tour is doing it. Um, but just don't lie. Don't lie about your collaborators, you know, be respectful to the people that were in your band and that made the band the way it is. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I'm probably talking too much shit here, but that's all right. I don't <laughs> care. You know, to me, I, I, I really think, Steve makes this point in the book. I really, I mean, I agree with him. The Black Crows are not a songwriter's band. You know, like Rich, like Chris and Rich always like to talk about how, like, well, we wrote all the songs. The implication being, like, well, this band is, this band is, it's more us than anybody else because we wrote these songs. But it's like, how many Black Crows songs are, like, standards that anybody could play and they would be great? You know, like in the same way that like Beatles songs are or right. that Rolling Stones songs are. There's not that many. You know, the magic of that band is that it is the people who played in the band. It's the sound of those of all those guys together and what they took and how they transformed pretty good songs in some cases. And in other cases, kind of mediocre songs. Like, let's be honest. And made them sound great, you know, because of the because of the uh, the chemistry in that band. Like even a song like "Wiser Time," which I think we would all agree is like among the greatest Black Crow songs. Is that a great song that like anybody could play an acoustic guitar and it would sound great, or is that a great performance where it's like it's about like the sound of Steve's drums? And the sound of the vocals, and like Eddie Harsh's great keyboard solo, and like Mark Ford's great guitar playing on there. It's like, to me, it's about the performances more often than not. That's not a knock against the Black Crows. It's actually a compliment to what that band in its prime created together, you know, in the same way, like if you talk about Little Feet or something, like Little Feet. They have a lot of good songs, 
but it's like the sound of that band playing together is magical. Right. And like, that's what you love when you listen to their records, you listen to their bootlegs or you listen to the faces, you know, like the faces, like they've got some good songs, but it's like, Oh, I want to hear the combination of all those guys together. Like what they do. And to me, that's what the black crows is at their peak that, um, it's good songs and great musicianship. And um, so, you know, so, so for me, like to hear Chris and Rich kind of talk about the songwriting, making, I don't know. It's like, yeah, 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 you wrote the songs, but like the band played it, you know, and like it wouldn't have been as good if it wouldn't have, if you wouldn't have had those guys playing it. Right. You know, and I think most fans feel that way. Exactly. Well, Stephen, you've been on quite a roll lately. You know, you had Twilight of the Gods, which was very well received. This book has been very well received and, and um, you know, it seems like it has sold really well. You have an upcoming book um, about Radiohead. Can you to give us a little preview of that? Like what angle you're taking with that one? Uh, it's like uh, it's it's different than hard to handle. This is back to me being inside my own head, basically, <laughs> I like writing from my own perspective. But yeah, it's about uh, their fourth record, Kid A, which came oh. out in two thousand, and uh, the book is going to be timed with the twentieth anniversary of that record. So I'm talking about a bad album, but it's also talking about. The album's, uh, I'm sorry, the band's career up until the release of that record and also like after that album. So it's really kind of looking at Radiohead's overall career and looking at Kid A as like a fulcrum, you know, and, and like how they and like how they led up to that and what the impact of that album was on their career and culture in general and how they moved on from that. Cause I really think that that album is like a very, very important album, um, in their career. And also just for music, like in the last, you know, like 20 years, like the early 20th century, uh, sorry, early uh, 21st century. Um, so yeah, I'm in the, um, final stages of that. I'm actually in the middle of writing the last chapter right now. And I have to turn it in, in a couple weeks. So, uh, yeah, it, it's crunch time with that book, but I'm pretty <laughs> excited about it. I think it's turning out pretty well. Yeah, it's going to be out. It'll probably be like next summer. Oh man, I definitely, definitely look, looking forward to that because I, I, I personally think that 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 is the pivotal album in their catalog. And up oh, until yeah. the point, up until the point that In Rainbows came out, it was my favorite Radiohead record. But it's also, I, I just love the concept of that record because. It's like, okay, well, you like us playing guitars and you like all these great songs with guitars. Well, we're going to throw the guitars away and we're going to do all these more soundscape kind of things and really, really change it up and challenge our fan base. I always thought that was great. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and obviously my book talks about their decision to do that and also how that influenced other bands. Because like, I feel like yes. that's become, in a way, a cliche that on your fourth record or so, that you have to decide that I'm gonna get a, I'm I'm gonna get experience now. You know, it's like I've I've like done the I've I've done the guitar records, I've done you know the successful multi platinum thing, and now I'm gonna do the experimental Kid A record. You know, and 
you know, other bands have, have done stuff like that, including, you know, like Arcade Fire did that and like mm-hmm. Coldplay did that and the other bands have done that. And of course, you know, Radiohead was influenced, I think, in a way like by U2, mm-hmm. like how U2, like in the early 90s, you know, started kind of going off in a more sort of experimental direction on Octune Baby and, and Zuropa. And there's a there's a extended section of the book comparing and, and, and contrasting Radiohead and U2 uh, during that time. Um, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun book. I'm I, I'm I'm pretty happy with how it turns out. With how it turned out, I mean, you know, I'm at the process in in the book writing uh, thing, like where you read something and you're like, oh, this is great. And like the next day, like you absolutely hate it, you know, <laughs> it's like it kind of goes back and forth. Um, but, yeah, I think it'll be good. I, I hope people enjoy it when it comes out. Well, Stephen, we, um, we we're just so thankful that you uh, man, you gave us almost an hour. I, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time just about music in general and the, the chance to get to discuss uh, our favorite band with you and a. Uh, a guy now who's permanently part of the expanded uh, Black Crows universe. Uh, it's just been a real treat for me and Ian. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah, me, well, well, me too. And I and I appreciate you uh, letting me get worked up. I got. I <laughs> feel like I just ranted for a long time here, but no, it's it's great. And uh, you know, and it's so cool that you guys have this show and are waving the Black Crows flag because, like I said, I think the band themselves they they haven't been great about waving their own flag. So fans kind of have to do it on, uh, do it on their own, you know, yes. and, and remind subsequent generations that this band was great and are worth investigating and rediscovering. So uh, I, I, I definitely appreciate what you guys are doing on this show. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we're going to spring, we're, we're going to spring one on you here. Uh, at the end of every show, we always let our guest uh, give us a, a Black Crow song to play us out. So, since you're our guest this week, uh, what would you like for us to play out with? My my first instinct was to like actually be very specific and mention like a specific version of a song from like a bootleg. We have everything, Steve. Or something. Do you, you have everything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, do you have uh, like? The Nebuchadnezzar from like the uh, uh, God, what show was that? Well, let's, I'll just say Nebuchadnezzar okay. right now because well, I've been I, I've been listening to like a lot of like '96 and '97 uh, bootlegs, like the very dark drug mm-hmm. debt period, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is great. Actually, the S in Germany show I think I've been listening to the most. Do you guys know that show from '96? I, I think it's like November '96. Absolutely, S in yeah. Um. And uh, they do Nebuchadnezzar in that show. And uh, God, what's the first song that they do in that show? It's the moment I touch you, the moment I die. Oh, one, one mirror, mirror too many. many. Yeah, <laughs> do that song. Okay. If you could find, if you could play that specific version, that'd be amazing. Otherwise, just play the version from the record. That's fine. But oh uh, no. Well, I got the one you're talking about, so we oh, have man. to serve that up. How awesome of a, a concert opener <laughs> is that, by the way? Oh, it's great. So, perfect. It's so great. I remember just talking to Steve about that era, and he's just like talking about how awful it was to play those shows because people were either you know totally strung out or like you know people weren't showing up. It was like half full shows, and 
you know, it was like a pretty terrible period, I think, for the band. But like those bootlegs are so amazing. That's like my favorite <laughs> era of like live Black Rose stuff. Okay. All yeah, right, definitely play that. That'd be amazing. Like we said, our our, our, our thank you to Stephen Hyden. You can find him on Twitter at uh, Stephen underscore Hyden. Uh, he writes for Uproxx. Subscribe to that Celebration Rock podcast just in case he puts out another one. But go and hit that. <laughs> go and hit the back catalog. Uh, the Steve interview is great, but uh, a lot of really good stuff on there. Interviews with Brian Fallon, Patterson Hood. Uh, you'll really enjoy it. And uh, uh, big thank you uh, to, to Stephen again. And here we are with. Either Nebuchadnezzar or One Mirror Too Many. We'll sort this one out on, on the back end. <laughs> one Mirror Too Many. Play that. One Mirror right Too on. Many. Thank you so much, everybody, and stay tall. <laughs>